As you know, beloved listeners, it was recently announced that Jimmy Carter, the man who beat Gerald Ford to become the 39th president of the US in 1976, that he'd spend the last stage of his life at home, surrounded by family as he receives hospice care. Since then, any number of tributes have been penned for the 98-year-old former president, but there was one in particular that grabbed our attention. In fact, it almost brought me to tears. And that was a piece in The Atlantic by his former speechwriter, James Fellows, titled An Unlucky President and a Lucky Man. James says that throughout his long life, Carter has always remained the same. Quote, disciplined, funny, enormously intelligent and deeply spiritual. We're greatly honoured to have James with us now to talk more about the life and legacy of Jimmy Carter. And I must say, uh, James, in welcoming you back to the program after a long absence, Jimmy was always, in my view, a grossly underrated president and without doubt the most noble of the ex-presidents. What was it about Carter's life that made you think and stress the idea of luck? So, Philip, thank you so much for having me back, and thank you for mentioning this piece I did. And as the years have gone on, and as uh, former President Carter has aged into his late 90s, and we all knew that at some point this assessment of his career and life's works would, would be necessary, became more and more striking to me the significance of his having spent 10 times as long as former president as he did when he was in office. He was uh, he has been former, former president for 42 years now, and he was in, in the office, of course, for, for four years. And that's had, I think, um, one obvious effect and one that is, um, that is perhaps less obvious but worth emphasizing. The obvious one is that the role of the modern former presidency has been completely invented by Jimmy Carter. Um, he is, again, by a large margin, the longest serving former president ever in American history. And he set a standard of what people should do with the world influence and the personal power and the networks and everything else that come from having been uh, at for a while the most uh, allegedly most powerful person on earth. And so he's said that people should put themselves to good works and they should try not to be corrupt and they should have a broad international view, etc. The other thing which um, struck me only on reflection is that it's now the case that most people in the United States were not even alive when Jimmy Carter was president. The median age in the U.S. is now 38 or 39. So Carter had left office before most people were born. And so people know him only as this kindly gent uh, who has been fighting disease in Africa and monitoring elections in South America and doing things like that. But the fact that he, he, that he had this lightning fast ascent to, to power, which has been still unmatched by anybody uh, before or since, and then his travels in office, and then his long time as a former president, those all seemed worth discussing for me. Absolutely. And uh, he grew up, of course, in the rural south, in Georgia, in the interwar period, and uh, served in the forces. Yes, he actually went to the U.S. Naval Academy. I, I think it's still the case. He's the only uh, Naval Academy graduate ever to become president. And he was part of the then very new and exciting nuclear-powered submarine force in the late 1940s and through the 1950s. He had uh, no 
national name recognition. Well, he did. He had 1%. How did he achieve such a, a stunning rise, not just in recognition, but in popularity? So I think there's a, there's a mechanical answer to that question, and then there's a less mechanical sort of emotional or, or spiritual answer to it. The mechanical one was that starting in early 1974, as he was nearing the end of his time in office as governor of Georgia for just one term and two years before the election, and around the time that Richard Nixon was coming to the end of his time, his disgraced time in Watergate, Carter set out a plan that was concentrating on retail-level politics. Many of your listeners will have heard about the notorious Iowa caucuses, which had just been invented then, and Carter's team figured out that if he met essentially everybody in Iowa, which is a small state, he could use that to <laughs> leap ahead of, of other people. And so he pretty much did that. So mechanically, he just went out and said to people day after day, my name is Jimmy Carter and I'm running for president. I think the other factor, the spiritual factor, the, the magical factor, if you will, is it's almost impossible to convey the excitement uh, that he had and the personal promise he had. And I think the closest counterpart would be Barack Obama during the uh, the, the the most um, you know impressive parts of his rise. That Carter went around the country with his with his X-ray powered blue eyes and with his big smile and his ability to uh, talk very intelligently to people in small gatherings and tell them. In contrast to Richard Nixon, in contrast to Lyndon Johnson during the years of Vietnam, in contrast to all the tawdriness that was going on, he would say, I'll never lie to you. He said, not ironically, we're going to have a government as good as our people. <laughs> now, you could have ironic uh, readings of that, but he meant it sincerely and people took it sincerely. And he just managed to have, at a time when the country was really looking for some kind of balm, he was able to say, I can be this person. I've just been looking at an image of him, much more recent, where he's climbing onto a plane, an ordinary scheduled aircraft, and he's going up and down the aisle and he's introducing himself and shaking the hands of every other passenger. It is incredible. And so you could say there's no reason for him to have to do that now. Barack Obama, for example, has almost no exposure to crowds these days. And and uh, George W. Bush, um, similarly, I have no idea about uh, Donald Trump, but it just has been in Carter's nature to feel as if he had that person to person, uh, you could say even pastoral duty a feeling as if he wanted to connect people, even at age 98, uh, even with all the health problems he's had. He cast a wide uh, cultural net in that he embraced rock music, and he'd quote Bob Dylan. Oh, and he spoke about Vietnam as a racist war. It was, again, I'll use the comparison of Barack Obama, who people all around the world are familiar with, of course. Obama was known for bridging various divides in American culture, of course, black and white. And he gave his uh, introduction speech at the Democratic Convention in 2004, talking about not red states and blue states, but the United States. And Carter, without having to push it, sort of embodied that. 
He was a big fan of rock and roll music and Rolling Stone magazine with Hunter S. Thompson, who was the original gonzo journalist. That was the first big press that Jimmy Carter got. The Allman Brothers Band, one of the famous early <laughs> 1970s rock and roll bands. They were big fans of his and he, he was uh, fans of theirs and had all their, their records. But he also was a very serious evangelical and he was a U.S. Navy veteran and he was a Southerner. Uh, you know, the first Southerner elected the presidency since the Civil War. And he had grown up in the Great Depression, so he encompassed multitudes. You know, that the fact that he was an evangelical seems so paradoxical these days because for so long in the post-Carter era, evangelicals took up uh, cudgels on the far right. That is, there are two huge um, tectonic shifts in U.S. politics that happened after Jimmy Carter's time. One is, was the conversion of the U.S. South, the former Confederacy, from the base of the, Repo of the Demo Democrats, which it had been for a very long time, and Carter carried you know, all the states of the Confederacy except uh, Virginia into the Republicans' base, as uh, your, your listeners all know. The other was the shift of evangelical, born-again uh, religious figures in the U.S. from being sort of above politics to being essentially an arm of the, of the Republican Party. And that was something that was I, – I don't, I don't know clearly enough who engineered that of how, how it happened, how Jerry Falwell and Pat Robertson and others, which became sort of the early versions of U.S. Fox News. You know, Fox News in the U.S. is an arm of the Republican Party. And after Jimmy Carter, uh, the evangelical born-again movement essentially became that that too. I'm shocked that you would allege that Fox News is the, uh, is the arm of a Republican Party. I hope Rupert isn't listening. Now... <laughs> Back, of course, his his testimony has just come out in the U.S. as you and I are speaking, which is opening a lot of eyes on this point. But uh, but I digress. You well, we both digress. But uh, when did you first enter his orbit, James? This was uh, was in early 1976 when he was starting to get some traction. At the time, I was 26 years old. We were living in Austin, Texas. My wife was in graduate school getting a doctorate in linguistics. I had no job. Um, it is, it's often the case that people who work on presidential uh, campaign staffs are young and underemployed because most presidential candidates lose. So people who have anything, any real job don't usually sign up. So I'd written some articles about governmental reform and things that uh, Jimmy Carter was interest, interested in in a small magazine. Some of Carter's people had seen them. They were trying to, to build up a bigger staff as he got more momentum. Somebody said, you want to try this? I said, why not? So I left for Atlanta, Georgia, the campaign headquarters, the day after we found out my wife was pregnant with our first son. And so she was rolling her eyes. But I then spent the next uh, <laughs> six months on the campaign trail and then two years in the White House. And the rest is history. I'm talking to James Fellows, contributing writer at The Atlantic, who was the chief White House speechwriter for Jimmy Carter. He becomes president in 77. And in his inauguration speech, he thanks Gerald Ford for, quote, all he has done to heal our land. Why was that so significant? And incidentally, I'm fully aware that you were, were involved in the drafting of the speech. That was a, a 
deceptively important thing for Carter to have said at that time. And the backstory, of course, is that Richard Nixon was involved in all the Watergate impeachment, and he resigned uh, in disgrace before he was uh, formally removed from office, and Gerald Ford. Uh, became his successor. Gerald Ford, the only person never to have been elected, either vice president or president, but but took the office. There's a long story, which we can uh, go into. And Ford, after a decent interval, I think maybe a, a couple of weeks, I don't recall, decided to give Nixon a blanket preemptive pardon for everything involved in the Watergate case. And that was very a, Donald Trumpian of him. <laughs> yes, we, we can see the similarities and we can imagine the, the, the differences, too. It, it was one person and a difference would be um, Ford argued that it was in the national interest, that there had not been a case before and still has not been yet of a former president being prosecuted and that Ford thought it would be good for the nation just to resolve this. Nixon was going away. He was in Southern California. He had no remaining pull. So just get this done with. This was crassly an advantage for the Carter campaign that I was working on because it meant that Gerald Ford, who had no other engagement in Watergate, suddenly Watergate was Ford's problem too. And so it became it was something that Carter um, didn't attack Ford for, but we brought it up in the things, you know, the statements we put out that, you know, this the whole Watergate um, uh, era spills uh, spreads over to the, the current Republicans you know, of that time as well. So it was it was crassly bad for Ford's campaign and good for Car Carter's campaign. But Carter was symbolizing in the very first words he said on being sworn in as president that he wanted to thank um, former President Ford for all he had done, quote, to heal our land. And so that was seen as as being big spirited. You, um, you say that from day one, he inherited a U.S. that was nearly ungovernable. Why was that? It was a terrible time in U.S. history and and arguably um, the worst time I can remember living through, you know, as a uh, as a baby boomer generation person. The late 1960s were violent and traumatic and assassination filled in the United States. The 1970s were more just kind of bereft and things falling apart. And uh, the the evacuation from Saigon was less than two years before Carter was sworn in. It was the beginning of uh, gasoline crises and energy crises and the beginning of the long stagflation, as the, the term they came up with then, of the next 15 or 20 years. So it was a really bad time in economic prospects and civic society and all the rest. And so it was a leap a leap of faith for the electorate to go to somebody who was a one-term Georgia governor and the same conditions that made that leap of faith meant it was going to be difficult actually doing things. Someone else who worked with Carter wrote recently that he was always willing to make principled decisions even if they cost him politically. Does that ring true with you, James? Yes, with the caveat that no politician can be, quote, uh, absolutely, quote, unquote, pure or clean or whatever, that that something that struck me when I was working for those two years in the White House is that the only decisions a any national leader and especially a U.S. president, the only decisions that he or she ever gets to make are the impossible ones. 
the ones where you're just going to infuriate half the people anyway, because all the other decisions will get made by somebody else. So um, there are times when Carter would, uh, you know, shade what he was saying or decide there was a battle he didn't need to fight today, et cetera. But in the long sweep of other people who've held that office or similar offices, he was a remarkably principled person. Well, let's talk about some of those principles in action, because uh, he actually did a lot of good stuff during his presidency, particularly on foreign policy matters. Uh, Indeed. And this is something that is um, probably didn't even make it under the radar screen um, in in outside the Americas. But Carter's pushing through the Panama Canal Treaty at enormous political cost to himself was a really far-sighted thing to do in terms of U.S. relations with um, the other its neighbors in in both North and South America. Of course, under Theodore Roosevelt, the U.S. had more or less invented the country of Panama so they could build its own canal there. And it had been a, a quasi-colonial operation for a long time. And Carter said this was wrong. He was going to change it. There also was a much more international renown. His brokering, brokering of the Camp David Peace Accords between Anwar Sadat and Menachem Begin. And that could not possibly have happened without Carter being there as midwife and judge and coach and um, conscience for these two very different people for a long number of days. And and I I was fortunate enough to be there for some of that. And you could tell that it was only through Carter's intervention that the only lasting peace in that part of the world uh, came about. And it's fair to say that his human rights policies brought the U.S., well, generations of respect. I, I think that is is so. And, and again, um, something uh, I'm sure many of your listeners will will have heard of, of Richard Holbrook, who was a he died maybe 10 years ago, uh, relatively young. He was a very um, a very colorful uh, figure in American foreign policy from the Vietnam years onward. He was somebody I wor- He was then uh, an assistant secretary of state and he was very much in, ch- in charge of trying to craft the Carter uh, foreign policy statements about human rights. And I was writing a number of these speeches. And the trick that Carter had to pull off uh, was to, to say that, of course, things can never be entirely crystal clear. Of course, there are practicalities and real world circumstances that any nation will deal with, but it matters to stand up for principle. It matters to stand up for democracy. It matters to stand up as if we're not just an imperial power, but a nation built on an ideal. I think this is a perfect time to play an excerpt from the speech he gave at Notre Dame in 1977, which, again, you had a hand in writing. I believe we can have a foreign policy that is democratic, that is based on fundamental values, and it uses power and influence, which we have, for humane purposes. We can also have a foreign policy that the American people both support and, for a change, know about and understand. I have a quiet confidence in our own political system because we know that democracy works. We can reject the arguments of those rulers who deny human rights to their people. We are confident that democracy's example will be compelling 
And so we seek to bring that example closer to those from whom, in the past few years, we have been separated. That stands up very well, doesn't it? It, it does. And I've had occasion to look at that speech again, which, as you noted, uh, I w- was, was involved in, you know, in thinking about um, Jimmy Carter's legacy. Also, it's striking on hearing that passage w- once more, his emphasis on the confidence of democracies, because later in his administration, he was talking in different terms about crises of confidence. But it was uh, striking that he was emphasizing that 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 in the long run, he had faith in the power of, uh, that it was not simply might that made right, but that right could make might over the long, over the long run. Let's now talk about domestic achievements. Were there significant ones? There were, uh, yes. And and so uh, this was a time when in the United States, it was still an era of post-Franklin Roosevelt, post-Lyndon Johnson, almost wartime large governmental programs, even in areas where they did not need to exist. And so Carter had a quite ambitious deregulatory agenda on things from the airlines, where uh, until his time, every single flight to every single destination had to be improved by the government before you could go one place to another, to the craft beer uh, movement. Uh, Jimmy Carter invented the modern craft beer wave around the world by uh, removing a lot of prohibition <laughs> era. It, it is true. Prohibition era restrictions on, on uh, brewing. Um, he, he was visionary on environmental and energy issues. Again, I'm glad right you raised that because I have a dim memory of him putting solar panels on the White House. He certainly did. And, and, and this was one of the there are many things one can admire about Ronald Reagan. One thing for which I hold him in lasting disdain is that in his first week in taking office after beating Jimmy Carter, Reagan ostentatiously removed those solar panels uh, from the, the the roof of, of the White House. But Carter gave um, he, he took in his first year in office, there were all kinds of Gasoline prices were, you know, tripling or quadrupling. There were shortages of of gasoline, which, as you know, is a national crisis for the U.S. There were shortages of coal. Uh, he had to give one speech urging people to wear sweaters indoors and and turn their thermostats down. And so he had a long term view of not dealing with this just what's the thing we can do next week to get more coal, but what is the way that we can have a sustainable human civilization, sustainable American civilization and human civilization. So one other thing here is as a naval officer in the late 1940s, he had been on the very first nuclear powered submarines in the uh, the Navy of Admiral Hyman Rickover. And that really got his attention as as a proxy of the many ways in which energy could mean something different in the long run. The Little Wireless Program is honored to have as a guest James Fellows, the chief White House speechwriter for Jimmy Carter. Another famous speech was his prophetic 1979 address, which became known as the Malaise speech. Let's hear a little of it. It is a crisis of confidence It is a crisis that strikes at the very heart and soul and spirit of our national will. We can see this crisis in the growing doubt about the meaning of our own lives and in the loss 
of a unity of purpose for our nation. The erosion of our confidence in the future is threatening to destroy the social and the political fabric of America. Now, not one of yours, James, but uh, you say it deserves much more respect than it's received. Yes. And so I'll, I'll point out that I had left the White House a couple of months before that and had gone into the, the journalism world. And it was uh, my successor and dear friend, uh, Rick Hertzberg, who was was working very closely with, with Carter on that. Again, this was a time when prospects were just darkening on every front for the U.S. And we've heard the last couple of years crises of, of uh, democracy around the world. There was that sense in the late 1970s in the U.S. and other places, too. And Carter went off to Camp David, the presidential retreat, and was there by himself for a week or 10 days. He called in all these historians and thinkers and other people to, to talk with him. And the speech he gave um, at the time was very successful, effective, and popular. He was speaking to something that seemed to be broadly shared, a sense of uh, of lost direction and of lost common purpose and all the other things that we've grown accustomed to in, in, in recent discourse. And Carter was talking about ways in which, number one, this phenomenon could be recognized, and number two, public and private and individual things that people might do about it. And at the time, it was, for, for a week or so, it was quite popular. His uh, support, his opinion poll support went up by, by almost 10 points, which is which is unbelievable. These days, when people say the malaise speech, it's like saying the Iranian hostage disaster or some other uh, bad thing that happened in the 1970s. But that that's a retrospective and unfair judgment. Well, we'll move on to that in just a second. But uh, David French in the New York Times last week, described it as Carter's greatest speech. It was just delivered four decades too soon. Now, Carter himself blamed the hostage crisis for his failure to win a second term. Remind the Australian listener what that was. So, so exactly one year before the U.S. Election Day in 1980, that is to say in November of 1979, as part of the ongoing um, overthrow of the Shah of Iran in Iran and the coming of the Ayatollah Khomeini and his uh, Islamic regime, the, a group of Iranian students and protesters seized the U.S. embassy in Tehran and took some large number, some dozens of U.S. diplomats hostage and kept them there, as it turned out, for more than one year. Uh, this became a tremendous humiliation and source of embarrassment for for the U.S. Also, it was the beginning of a really pernicious trend in U.S. journalism, one of many, where there were shows each night saying Day three of America held hostage. Day 96 of America held hostage. Day 122, of course, ticking off to day 365 on election day. In the spring of 1980, that is during the election year, Carter secretly approved a rescue mission. Uh, that would send in some uh, some C-130s or some other large transport aircraft and some helicopters to fly under cover of, you know, fly at low altitude into Iran to park in the desert and to have all these commandos go in and get the American hostages out, more or less like the Israeli uh, Entebbe airport uh, mission uh, some years earlier. Uh, the short version, this was 
This led to one act of very high principle by a man named Cyrus Vance, who was then the Secretary of State. He told Jimmy Carter that he disagreed with his plan. He thought it wouldn't work and it would be disruptive. And Cyrus Vance submitted his resignation before the mission started. He did that in secret, so nobody knew. But he said, whether this succeeds or fails, I am against it. I'm submitting my, my resignation. And it did spectacularly fail. Uh, helicopters crashed into each other. I was recently at a big uh, military um, uh, university where they're saying it's studied for how you do everything wrong. And everything about U.S. special operations since then has been based on the lack of coordination and the lack of redundancy for that U.S. mission. But Carter's – and so when this failed and Carter had to go on TV and look directly at, at the uh, in the camera and say, this was my decision. I take responsibility. It failed. Um, this this is my, my burden. Um, he felt that if it had succeeded, then things would have been different in his race with Ronald Reagan, which only turned into a landslide right in the last week or so. It seemed close until then. His luck had certainly run out then. It wasn't the only factor at play, though, in his loss to Reagan. We had uh, Teddy Kennedy challenging Carter. Yes, there was a split in the Democratic uh, Party, and Carter was that was tremendously embittering to Jimmy Carter. There was a third-party candidate, John Anderson, a former Republican congressman from Illinois, who siphoned off a lot of votes. He didn't carry any states, but again, it's the effect of the third-party candidate. Um, it was be, uh, Carter's. Uh, the person who was the, then the head of the Federal Reserve Bank, Paul Volcker, with Carter's blessing really ramped up interest rates to 21% as the prime rate uh, as to try to beat the inflation of that time, which was entirely out of control. And that, of course, was really bad for Carter was running for election. Carter had a couple of just completely blind luck, bad things that happened to him. He was a very fit athlete. and He was running a 10K race. And for some odd reason, he sort of collapsed in the middle of it. So you had this picture of a mid-50s age president, very fit, looking like he's dying on the front page. And there was the famous killer rabbit episode where a wild rabbit attacked him in a canoe. <laughs> yes, if only we had time to tell that story. Okay, let's now move on to his, uh, his last hurrah, his post-presidential life which, as you point out, has been 10 times longer than his term in office, he and wife Rosalind form or found the non-profit Carter Centre in 1982. What wonderful work it has done. It has. It has monitored elections. It has um, it has done peacemaking on a smaller scale, comparable to what Carter was doing in the Camp David Accords. I think the achievement that Jimmy Carter says he's proudest of is dealing with this horrific sounding plague called the guinea worm, which is a horrible parasite that burrows into people's uh, bodies in Africa, and it was afflicting millions and millions of people. And Carter has been, and last year there were only 13 cases reported around the world. Carter has said with his uh, trademark rueful humor that his goal was to uh, make sure the last guinea worm died before he did. <laughs> it's interesting, isn't it, that uh, very often the Nobel Peace Prize has been, uh, well, almost absurd in the people it's chosen as recipients. Uh, in fact, even Barack Obama's uh, preemptive award comes to mind. But Jimmy well-deserved the Nobel Peace Prize he got in 2002. 
In, indeed, and this is part of the the fortune he had in in his longevity, because as you well know, you can only get a Nobel Prize if you're still alive. So that he was then in his late 70s. So if he had uh, died early, he would not have been around either to do the work or to have it recognized in that way. I want to end by hearing the message that Jimmy Carter put on the Voyager 1 spacecraft, which remains the most distant human-made object from Earth. You might have had a hand in this as well, James, but would you be kind enough to read us Jimmy Carter's Voyager 1 message? Yes, thank you. I would be honoured to. This is what is in that spacecraft still someplace out in the cosmos. This Voyager spacecraft was constructed by the United States of America. We are a community of 240 million human beings, among the more than 4 billion who inhabit the planet Earth. We human beings are still divided into nation states, but these states are rapidly becoming a single global civilization. We cast this message into the cosmos. It is likely to survive a billion years into our future, when our civilization is profoundly altered and the surface of the Earth may be vastly changed. Of the 200 billion stars in the Milky Way galaxy, some, perhaps many, may have inhabited planets and spacefaring civilizations. If one such civilization intercepts Voyager and can understand these recorded contents, here is our message. This is a present from a small distant world a token of our sounds, our science, our images, our music, our thoughts, and our feelings. We are attempting to survive our time so we may live into yours. We hope someday, having solved the problems we face, to join a community of galactic civilizations. This record represents our hope and our determination and our goodwill in a vast and awesome universe. Once again, I feel fear, feel tears welling up. What a beautiful piece of work. And to think that a, a president of the United States would think to send this as a statement to the future. Thank you very much. It's been an honor to talk to you again. And uh, my guest has been uh, Carter's former chief speechwriter, James Fellows. And we're speaking about He's an unlucky president and a lucky man. It's a, a piece in The Atlantic. James, thanks again. Philip, my great pleasure and honour. Listen to more great stories that take you beyond the headlines. Ask your smart speaker to play ABC RN.